Well, good to see you all. I want to invite you, if you wouldn't mind turning with me. We're in chapter 4 of Genesis this morning, and we have a lot to cover as we're working through this section of Scripture. And so I'm going to dive kind of directly in, just starting with a word of prayer, though, before we explore this section. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to us through this time in your word, through this time in the text. That's why we gather on Sunday morning, because we do believe that you have a word for us, uh, that this isn't a outdated, impractical book, but something that really breaks down and meets us exactly where we're at. And so we're asking for that to happen even in our time now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis. We've been going through this origin series all fall, and this will kind of set itself up as I begin to read. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. No interpretation needed there. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. I want to pause there. And really, if you think about it, this is the introduction of the very first family. We've been introduced to the very first man, the very first woman, the very first marriage, and now the very first family. But you remember last week with John sharing with us that this couple prior to this had made a really poor decision. They partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They made the decision to operate independent of God, to say, I'm going to be the one that determines right and wrong. I'm not going to take that mantle away from God, and I'm going to place it on myself. And what we described and have used the term before, they became self-gods, became self-gods, deciding for themselves, independent from God, the direction that they would go. Now they're introducing, for the very first time, the first generation of a new self-God showing up on the scene. Anybody interested to see how that's going to go? Here's the thing. We're introduced to the very first life that was born, the very first belly button, if you will. Cain. Cain was introduced first, and his name means a possession. It says that she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So it starts off good from my perspective. At least she's acknowledging that he's a gift from the Lord. It's kind of weird that she named him possession. It's even more weird that the second child named Abel actually means weak or weakness. And so I don't know if you'd want to run with that title through the rest of your life. My name's uh, Weak, nice to meet you. But either way, some would argue that this was the very first set of twins. We don't know for sure. There's not a lot of pause in between our timeline presented in between verse 1 and verse 2. Both Cain and Abel introduced on the scene. It was kind of a neat thing. Even this Friday in our own church, we were introduced to a, a set of twins. This is Reese and Jim Spock's two kids. Both Joshua and Luke born on Friday morning. We're celebrating with them this morning. Uh, I haven't heard whether they're identical twins or paternal twins. I don't know. We can find that out later. But either way, excited for them. So this is introduction, Cain, Abel. What does it tell us about Cain and Abel here? Tells us just simply what they do. It says that Abel is the keeper of sheep, kind of a shepherd or a herdsman, and Cain is the worker of the ground. A worker of the ground would be what? 
farmer, somebody that, that plants things, that grows things, crops, whatever. So basically we're introduced, not any kind of a hierarchy of one being more important, neither elevated in its occupation, but we're about to be introduced to a cautionary tale of what life looks like for someone that's operating as a self-god. And I would suggest in the next verses and the verses to come that we're going to see some different characteristics of what self-God living looks like. What self-God living looks like when you're deciding for yourself, independent of God's direction and his leadership, what's best? I would propose, we're going to see it doesn't go real great. Verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Listen to this, verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We'll stop there for some explanation. Basically, we're saying the very first thing is, a, I think, a positive sign that they obviously have a reverence for the Lord, maybe something that was introduced from their parents. The fact that they're bringing an offering to him is, I think, a good sign. But then what do you notice about their offerings? You notice first that Abel's offering is accepted by the Lord. And what do you notice about Cain's? Not so much. Doesn't really like his offering. Upon first read, you might think the same thing I did when I started studying. Why? What's wrong with his offering? You know, like what's the, what's the big deal? But the audience that would first be reading this, remember this was written by Moses, most likely introduced to the people of Israel after Mount Sinai, they would all, the audience reading this would all be very aware of what was missing in Cain's offering. The missing piece in Cain's offering was the sacrificial blood that was expected for any offering, any sin offering before our God. All the way back from the beginning, that's something that God outlined, that there's no approaching God without the shedding of sacrificial blood. It's Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin had to be dealt with. There had to be a penalty or consequence for sin. And so this offering that he's bringing, you notice that it says, God's pointing out to him, he's like, hey, hey, why are you upset? In other words, you know the right offering for you to bring. Why in the world do you see the confusion in God's voice in asking him? Because Hebrews 11.4 tells us this, says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. How could Abe offer a better sacrifice by faith if he didn't know what the appropriate sacrifice was to bring? So that was an act of faith. Cain is attempting, and this is what I want you to see. This is Cain's effort to come to God on his own terms, saying, hey, I'm not a shepherd. I'm a farmer. I'm going to bring my own fruit, the fruit of my labor before God. 
Do you see how things haven't changed a whole lot over time? Still man is trying to identify his own route to go before God. I'm going to do it this way. I know God's word says this, but I think there should be other ways to come before God. And we still do that, non-believers or believers. The non-believer says, you know, I'm just going to, through human effort. And God's like, no, you can't. Nobody can come before me with human effort. It doesn't work. But we still, as a people, keep trying to do that. As Christ followers, we still say, you know what? I'm going to still come before God with my kind of version of Christianity. I know his word says this. I know this is prescribed. I know that this is forbidden, but I have a sense that I'm supposed to do that. And you ask somebody, what about in God's word when it says you don't do this? Well, yeah, I know, but I really feel a nudge towards this. You're like, God doesn't contradict himself. See, in this, we see that even from the very first family, there is an interest in doing things our own way because they were doing what? Wearing the self-God hat. You think you can come on your own terms. And God points it out. I love how kind God is. This is kind of, as we explore this, we get to know God a little bit better. He's not coming with a big club and being like, you terrible person, which I probably would have. But instead, he's just like, hey, don't you understand? If you do what's right, what does he say there? He says, if you do well, will it not go well for you? That's a wonderful lesson for us still today. You know, you stay within the parameters of God's design, within his plan, things are going to go so much better. The alternative, you see what happens when you go outside of his plan. What do we see about his continents? Head down, depressed, angry, bitter. Isn't that so true still today? When we try to go to God on our own terms, when you go outside of the boundaries, what do you think is the outcome? For us, maybe one of the first things to ask when we find ourselves with that kind of nut of anger just kind of boiling up inside of us, when we're depressed, when we're down, where have I gotten off track? Where have I wandered from his plan? Where have I tried to go my own way independent of him? God in his kindness gently corrects him and then also gives him a bit of wisdom. Do you see it there in the text? It says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you do the offering and within the parameters I said, it's going to be acceptable. But if you do not do well, listen to this. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's the thing that he's pointing out. This is wisdom. This is counsel. And here's the trouble though. Before the partaking of the fruit, man, God just gave directives and that was, that was the law. Now it's kind of like a college student going off to school. You transition to giving directives to now all of a sudden you're giving advice. And the bad thing about advice is what? The person has a choice whether they take it or not. Any parents in that season where your kids are off to school and you're like, man, I used to like when I'd give directives, now I give counsel, and sometimes they don't take it. Here's the counsel that he gives them. He says, oh, you gotta, you gotta get reign over this. You have to control sin before it controls you. It's crouching. You use this picture of like a, a lion or, or something that's about to attack. He's saying, it's just waiting right outside the door. 
Its intentions are contrary to what's best for you. You have to understand this about sin. He tries to give a way back and a caution that sin is a leadership thing. Either you're going to rule it or it's going to rule you. How do you think he responds? Some of us know this story already. Doesn't go real well. So verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Sounds like he's off to a good start. And when they were in a field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and, what does it say? Killed him. Wow. Wow. Even before gun control. Like, what in the world? This idea, he dug in his heels. He didn't submit to God's counsel. God said, oh, just bring the right sacrifice. It's going to be okay. We can readjust this. It's going to be all right if you do that. Instead, he digs in his heels. And what does he do? He's like, I'm going to bring my own blood sacrifice. See, all of a sudden, it's interesting when you think about this. When you think about this as he's interacting with his brother, it starts with a conversation. And most likely, he's leading into a field. Because what happens in a field, you can't necessarily see what's going on in a field. This is premeditating. And here's the thing. He's learning what God had said. As sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting to take control of you. And it progresses pretty quickly, right? Remember in the last chapter, what happened with Eve? Eve had to be convinced to sin, right? She had to be manipulated and and talked into sinning. Now, just one generation later, what's happened now? Cain can't even be talked out of sinning. Do you see how that's progressed? First, Eve had to be talked into it. Now Cain can't be talked out of it because what's taken root is jealousy. You see, somebody that living outside of God's plan, man, they hate crossing paths with somebody that's walking within his parameters. It's funny how that works, isn't it? It's funny how the alternative is introduced. You're either ruling over temptation or temptation is ruling over you. How many times do you hear a murderer or someone on the other side of that heinous crime saying, I don't even know what made me do it. I don't know what happened. I I felt like I was out of control. And I wonder, as Cain's holding his breathless brother, I wonder if there is that sense of, what have I done? The very first death in human history. The very first death in human history. And that's, unfortunately, how sin works. You either control it or it controls you. It's always concerning to me, even in someone's life today, a Christian follower of Jesus Christ, when there's no longer a fight, when there's no longer a resistance, when we finally just submit to our sin and like, okay, whatever happens is going to happen. Man, that's such a dangerous place. And that's where they are here in this story, where unfortunately sin rules over him. And it about to see it has a snowball effect. Verse nine, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Whoa. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, the question that he asked there, do you think God was wondering? Do you think God was like, I don't know what happened to that. I know there's only four of you, but where did that Abel go? You know what I mean? Like, what in the world? He's not asking. He's providing the opportunity for what? Confession. 
repentance, acknowledgement of sin. But instead, what is the response? What is the response? I don't know. I don't know where he's at. Can you imagine talking to God like, I don't know. But isn't that interesting how sin works though? It snowballs, right? Anybody found that out when you've been confronted in an area of sin? What's your first inclination? You just make up stuff, right? You just make up stuff. You're about to lose a little bit of respect for your pastor. But back in uh, high school, I was told directly from my parents, do not go to this particular party. I don't want you on that side of town. When you steer clear, guess where I went? Of course, with my friends, to the party. On the way home, on the way home, we're getting onto an on-ramp, and we got in a disagreement with someone in another car. I scraped against the side rail, and guess where it took place? On the wrong side of the tracks. That sounds better. And so what I did is I said, oh man, what are we going to do to my friend? And, we, and we're starting, there's no thought in my mind that said, you know what? We need to just come clean. We need to confess. We need to tell dad we blew it and ask for forgiveness. No, you start planning. You start conniving. I said, you know what? If we create a false accident scene on the other side of town. So we go, we create the skid marks, we put glass in the, in the, I mean, it was bad. We had the police come out, fill out a report with this false accident location. This is, this is your pastor, I know. This, this is church, we're coming clean. So, so in that, then we made up a story about another car hitting us. And my dad, the rest of the night was out looking for this imaginary car I confess this some years later. He'll be in the next service. You guys can tell him. But here's the thing that I noticed, and it's funny when we talk about it in high school, not so funny when we talk about it now. Our inclination, when confronted, when sin is addressed in our life, what's the natural thing? I I don't know. I, I didn't do it. It wasn't my fault. It's not me. And before you know it, the longer you've hid a sin the more comfortable you get with what? Lying about that sin, covering that sin. Here, he's confronted directly with his sin. And what does he choose to do? I don't know where he's at. And can you believe the audacity in his language before God? I do not know the sarcastic, am I my brother's keeper? What was his brother? He was a, what? A keeper of sheep. So most theologians point to theirs. That was dripping with sarcasm, pointing to, am I the keeper of my brother now? Am I keeping him like he keeps sheep? Like, are you kidding me? When confronted, the audacity to sarcastically respond to God about our murder. But that's the truth about how sin works. There's no parameters. There's no nice sins. There's no boundaries. Once you've given over reign to sin, it doesn't have like a limit. It'll take you to the darkest of places. And we see it here in the text. We see it there. Am I my brother's keeper? Thinking about that in the last couple of years here. And a number of you have kind of tracked some of the stories in the news of different churches and some of the the failures. But one of the churches that I worked at, the lead pastor, I remember uh, him being confronted early on with his sin. And at first you're thinking to yourself, oh, those people, they're just making up things. And then the next witness came forward. Number four came forward. Number six came forward. He keeps denying it, denying it, denying it. Then number eight and number nine. And you're all of a sudden you're like, man, just acknowledge it. Just stop, stop covering things. Just confess it. That's the invitation that we have before our God is confession. 
Instead, we allow sin to just multiply, 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 and none of it sneaks by our God. What does he say there? He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me. It's crying out for justice. Verse 11 says, and now, God's response, he's already warned them. Now the results. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Look at Cain's response. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Stop there for a moment. It's kind of interesting. The warning's been given. Now the consequence, what do we know about Cain? What did he do as an occupation? He was a farmer. So now God's saying that thing that you've depended on up until now, that's no longer going to work for you. For Adam, it was a struggle to produce from the ground. For Cain, now it is a impossibility. God's saying it's not happening. And I'm taking that away from you. Because of the consequence of your actions, there's going to be a result or fruit of that. Now you're going to be a fugitive or a wanderer. For Adam, it was a little deal. For now, it's a really big deal. And you see his response. Parents that have dealt with kids before understand this response. I can't deal with this punishment. It's beyond what I can handle. You see, you're like, What's missing in that statement? What's missing in that statement? <laughs> Any kind of sorry. There, there's no version of, oh, I blew it, God. I'm so sorry. It goes straight to the consequence. You see, it? well, I, you had a pretty good cue there. You hate consequence, but there's no remorse. Always when we're working with our kids, we're trying to kind of foster and try to move towards a heart condition and not just get them upset about the consequence. I'll share a story about Chase since he's sitting in the back of the room. Not that long ago, he got grounded. And the whole time, as we're trying to work with him, we're just like, Chase, we just want to sense that you're sorry for what you did. He keeps focusing on the consequence. In fact, I mean, he was working hard to get ungrounded. We have those Amazon Alexas in our house. Do you guys have those? We had to rename them because our daughter's name is Alexa, so they're now Echo. Uh, but anyway, so we got those things, and my son figured out how to do this. He can be in one part of the house with his phone and start playing music on the one that's wherever in the house. Do you know what I'm saying? So as we're sitting downstairs, we're in the, in the living room, all of a sudden we hear this song by Brett Young. Here's a, a clip of it. If you ever love me and mercy <laughs> so he's utilizing this country music song pleading for mercy. Is that good? I, I almost ungrounded him, but not. But either way, there's something about that. There's something about it when you're like, oh man, you don't like the consequence. You don't like the consequence, but man, where's the heart? Where's the peace of man? I blew it. Why did I do that? I so long to see that with adults, with pastors. When we blow it, what a wonderful gift it is for us to do what? Just come before God and be like, man, I messed up. I'm sorry. Do you not think that people around you that are prone to their own mistakes are going to be like, man, 
I get it. I blow it too. Good for you for coming clean. That's what our God wanted, but instead he gets complaint about the consequence. Thinking through this for a second, if you're somebody that's implementing consequences, do you think that that consequence was kind of on the light side or the heavy side? I think it was kind of on the light side. I'm not going to lie. You know what I mean? Like you just killed a dude and now you can't get some growth from the ground. Like really? Like here's our God and his kindness. But listen to this. Verse 14, as he continues to complain about the consequence. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. That's probably the bigger part. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. You see how he's adding to this? Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away, listen to this, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. It's kind of ironic when you think about it that Cain is expressing fear that someone might kill him. You're like, uh, you're just afraid of someone doing to you what you did to somebody else here. But even in this, our God, in his kindness, says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a, a mark on you to protect you. I'm going to choose to extend grace to you even when you sure don't deserve it. We don't know what that mark was. I don't know if it was a tattoo. I remember working at a summer camp. We caught this turtle one time in the lake and somebody had written in paint across its back, leave me alone. And you're like, that was kind of counterproductive. It was so easy to catch. But anyway, this idea, we don't know exactly what it was. But the thing that's interesting to me is that he was more concerned about what? Concerned about his safety than he was what he should have been concerned about was the separation from God. We're at a conference this past week, and one of the pastors was talking about the trend of when somebody has their cell phone, and it's just about to be out of charge, and they're a long way from home. What sets in? Have you guys ever been in that place? This sense of panic. All of a sudden, you're no longer uncomfortable talking to strangers. You're just like, please, can I get can I, like a heroin addict? Can I get, a, can I get just a, a quick charge? Can I just stick? Can I just use your plug-in? You know, like all of a sudden, you don't care all abandoned because what? The idea of separation from the people that you care about is like unfathomable. We'll go to whatever extent, whatever extreme. And here you're like, wait a second. Where is the panic with Cain? Where's the panic? You see, unfortunately, is someone can get comfortable with living unconnected to our God. You can just kind of go on and do their thing, and God allows them to exist, and they're under their, his hedge of protection, and just go on and start doing their own thing. And, and it's not that big a deal because you've adjusted to life unconnected. That's a scary place to be and a wonderful warning for us this morning separate living, set apart, set apart. So there's, there's a division between you and your God. Here we see what he does in response. Verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, again, no explanation needed, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he, had, he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujal, and Mahujal fathered Methushal, and Methushal fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Uh, interesting. Uh, Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabul. He was the father of all who played the lyre and pipe. Zila also bore Tubacane. Sounds like a dental cream. Uh, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubacane was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, when I first was going through that this week, I was like, you know what? Maybe we'll just skip that section. You know, that's kind of a lot of hard names. You know, uh, I don't really necessarily want to look foolish reading them. And, and, uh, but then I was like, wait, what's, what's happening here? Do you see what's happening? So he's left God's presence. He's head off to the land of what? Anybody find it interesting that Crate and Barrel's kids line uh, for things is called the land of Nod? Anyway, uh, whatever. Uh, But here, here, here he's going to this new area to start life independent of God. You know what? I'm separated from him and I'm going to go and do what? I'm going to go start my own family. I'm going to build my own city. I'm going to start my offspring. My city that I build, which was, don't you think when he's building a a city, he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a, I'm not going to be a wanderer. It's almost an act of rebellion in and of itself before God. He's like, I'm going to build my own city. What does he name his city after? Not, please God, take me back. That should have been the name of the city. But instead he names it after his son. He all of a sudden in his family line. He starts having more kids, more offspring. They're doing all kinds of successful things. They're introducing lyre and uh, the, the, whatever the other musical instrument was there. They're learning how to work with bronze and iron. Basically, they're what? They're going off to all kinds of human successes. Somebody might watch the land of Nod and be like, oh, they're doing all right. They're doing okay. You know, they're establishing cities, they're colonizing, they're taking control of the land, they're building tools, they're coming up with new musical instruments, they're expanding their horizons. Talk about a picture of human effort there. But you notice all of these things are an attempt to satisfy, to fill a gap that our God was designed only to fill. And in this, you're introduced to a guy named Lamech that he starts to say, you know what, I'm going to start even going further outside of the lines. I'm going to take instead of one wife, this is crazy, I'm going to take two wives. Uh, This is the first time, first introduction of polygamy, the first introduction of a man going outside of God's bounds and designed for marriage. He says that, and look where that slippery slope takes him. Then he starts what? He starts bragging to his wives. Anytime somebody starts talking and referring to themselves in the third person, you should be concerned. You see that, you see that there in his dialogue. He, says, he said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. 
If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Do you see the boasting that's happening there? He's leaning in to the provision of God, to the protection. And here's the thing that happens is so often people get confused. They look across, they look at their circumstances. They're like, man, I've built my own city. I've had these human accomplishments. I'm doing pretty well. Obviously, God must be pleased with me. I'm underneath the umbrella of his provision, and they're presuming on his kindness, not understanding this. His kindness was meant to lead us to repentance. That was his intent. His kindness and human successes, all of these things that are good things, so that was supposed to lead you to come to me. Instead, it leads to what? Self-sufficiency. I'll kill this. And how dark is that? He kills basically what we see there in the text. He kills some young kid based on him poking him or doing something with him. He's like, yeah, he poked me. We were playing. This kid poked me, so I killed him. And now I'm protected. Like, how messed up is that? And here's really the exact same thing, the direction of how our world is still going, leaning into his graces and his kindnesses, but never, ever moving to repentance. We'll end with this last section, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. We know what that's saying. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Imagine that was heartbreaking for her. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, this is an important statement. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you see the two options there. This is, this is leaving the story for a second of Cain and jumping back to the story of Adam and Eve. They have a, another son and a, another son. Uh, the son has another son after that. And all of a sudden you see two various options of two different types of people groups. One people group that's operating completely independent of God and leaning into his provisions and his, his, uh, his kindness, presuming on it. The other group of mankind, and this is the, man, the group that will ultimately lead to Noah, which will ultimately lead to Christ. This other group is doing what? Oh, man, we see where that's taking us. We see where that's going, and we're going to choose the opposite. We're going to choose to call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that still until this day, until now? Isn't that still the really the two options that man kind has. You can either presume on God's kindness and his provision, kind of do the self-God thing, do whatever the heck you want, go whatever route. You might even successes see successes in life. Go whatever route. You can either presume on that or you can come back and call upon the name of the Lord. That's the option then. That's the option now. The invitation, though, is that somewhere along that line of Cain's downward spiral, if don't you wonder how this story would have looked differently if he would have chosen somewhere in that adventure to be like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I blew it. Do you not think there would have been a little bit different? These former chapters would have progressed a little bit differently if there was an earlier calling out and coming back to the Lord? I presume so. I think for us today, it's still applicable, even on a daily basis. Who are you doing? Are you presuming on his kindness and his provision or are you calling out 
on the name of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this story of Cain. That's a cautionary tale of living as a self-God. Trying to come before you with our own means. Ignoring your word and ignoring your instruction. How do we see where that takes us? It's a, a downward spiral where we start to lose more and more control. We, we wonder why we're so angry. We wonder why we're so depressed. We wonder why lies couple on top of lies. God, that's not what you have for us. That's not your desire for us. God, my prayer for even us, for myself in this room, is that there would be a calling out. There would be a coming back. I love that you leave that as a standing invitation, not just big picture wise, but moment by moment. Who are we going to cling to? Our own wisdom or calling out to you? I thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your grace as we get glimpses of your character through this story. It's, it keeps being an invitation to come back. We thank you for that. We thank you for the God that you are. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. love those lines. You gave your life so that I would have mine. It's the gift that he's given his grace in Jesus Christ. I pray that we lean into that this week, but not presume on it. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. If there's something specific we can pray for, we have a couple volunteers here up front. God bless you.